good Wednesday morning to you, me amigos. This is Rogue Grace coming live <laughs> from the Applegate Christian Fellowship. You know that church out in the middle of nowhere. I'm pretty excited because the church I worked at previously down in Southern California just sent me a package containing at least 200, maybe 300 pages of notes that I thought I had lost. And I just looked at them and I'm excited because you see, those are notes that maybe my brain has chosen to forget after my surgery on my brain a couple of months ago. And I'm just looking at the first one, the first page, uh, or an excerpt from it. And it simply says, grace works. <laughs> That's true, right? Grace works. And you look at Jesus in his three and a half years of ministry. And he was never in a hurry, was he? I mean, it didn't seem that way. It doesn't look that way. He was cool. Like Clint Eastwood. No, Clint Eastwood is like Jesus. Well, not really. Uh, I better just... I better abandon that for a moment. But Jesus is really like the temple in the sense of it's outwardly busy, perhaps. Perhaps busy, busy with all kinds of sacrifice and activity and religious, good religious works, but inwardly at rest in the Holy of Holies completely at peace. That's what I want. No matter how busy I might be outwardly, I hope God does accomplish good works in my life outwardly, but inwardly I need that peace. To be productive and at peace. So, The book of Hebrews says, labor to enter into God's rest. Labor to rest, right? Labor to not labor. Get out of the way. How how does that work? Here's an example for you. When Jesus was going to feed the 5,000 with a few loaves and fish, he first told Peter to tell, to instruct the people to sit down. Have the people sit down. Then the miracle took place. And I think the Lord would often say to this Peter, this guy right here, sit down. (laughs) Stop striving or worrying stressing sit down my son and watch and see what the lord will do and that was the problem as you know with the children of israel they didn't believe that the work was finished when god said i gave you the land past tense he didn't say i will give you he says i gave you the land but they didn't buy it, believe it, receive it, and it cost them 40 years out in the desert. So here's what you do. Here's my point. When the, when your flesh, or maybe even more powerfully, when the devil whispers into your ear, so to speak, when he whispers or your flesh whispers, what you going to do? When the, when the devil says, what you going to do? 
you know how you respond, right? You respond to him by saying, you you're talking to me? Yeah. What you going to do? Nothing. What you going to do about this? What you going to do about that? Nothing. Well, you got to do something. No, Jesus did it all. It is finished. Well, it doesn't look finished. Yeah, but remember when God said it is good in the Garden of Eden, long before it was perfect? He says the same thing about you right now. It is good. Well, no, it's not. I got this and this. Yes, it might not seem perfect, but it is good. It is finished. I will give you rest for your soul. I like what Psalm 127 says. Unless the Lord labors to build the house, they who labor do labor in vain. Unless the Lord labors, it's all for nothing. It's all stressing for no reason. So my question is to me, to you, do you trust in the Lord's labor for you? Then Labor to enter into his rest. See why I'm so excited about finding my notes? <laughs> we'll be right back. On a hill far away Stood an old rugged cross The emblem of suffering and shame And I love that old cross Will the dearest and best For a world of lost sinners was slain And so I'll cherish the old rugged cross Till my trophies at last I lay down And I will cling to the old And exchange it someday for a crown Oh, that old rugged cross So despised by the world Has a wondrous attraction for me For the dear Lamb of God Left His glory above finding, maybe you have found, that there is a difference between experiencing Jesus Christ and simply looking at him or studying him or even admiring him. 
there are many times I've studied and admired Jesus very much. But it doesn't mean that every single time that I did, I experienced him. And I hope you don't take this the wrong way. It's not me trumpeting my own horn, okay? But this morning, I was able to experience him. And I'm thankful to it. There's no treasure like it in the world. Nothing compares to experiencing Jesus, as you may know. Here's an example of this. Remember the two disciples who were on their way home on the road to Emmaus and they were feeling dejected? Really, in many ways, I think they were encouraging each other to be even more depressed because Jesus had died and was buried. And so they're going to Emmaus about, I don't know, seven miles outside of Jerusalem. And Jesus, risen from the dead, joins them. And they didn't recognize it was him for those next seven miles to their house. Their eyes were restrained from recognizing that it was Jesus. Now we might wonder, if Jesus had risen, so why did the Lord restrain their eyes? Because it was more important for them, I suggest to you, to see Jesus in the scriptures than to see Jesus even in person. I suggest that to you. Just like you and I can see Jesus in the scriptures like I was able to this morning and maybe you did too. That we can experience him. And not simply know about him or admire him. It comes through the B-I-B-L-E. For the entire Bible is about Jesus. And those two guys at the end of their journey on that road to Emmaus, it says that their hearts were strangely warmed from talking to Jesus, not recognizing it was him, but hearing his understanding of the Bible. They went from troubled hearts to burning hearts. And I don't mean the bad kind of heart burn either. So each day, and, and even on, particularly maybe in a certain way, on Sundays when we gather together, or Wednesday night, which is tonight, like that one that they had that Sunday, we can follow that pattern. An exposition about Jesus, about himself. And we take communion in remembrance of him. Man, do I want an MP3 of that journey that those two guys had with Jesus. Man, I would pay at least $10 for it. $9.99 for that MP3 on that journey Jesus explaining himself. Just like, remember when Joseph revealed himself the second time he encountered his brothers? Remember that? The first time he explained it or ex revealed himself, it was okay. But then his father died and they thought he was then going to do them in for what they did to him. And, and he's in Egypt and they're in Egypt and he reveals himself a second time he encounters his brothers to show them, I'm not going to do you in. Now these two guys, these two disciples Jesus is walking with on the road to Emmaus were depressed when he encounters them. And they were depressed for the same reason we can be. They wanted to see Jesus redeem Israel. They wanted to see his kingdom on earth which is understandable, but that hadn't happened in the way that they pictured. How often I can get depressed like those two guys when God's kingdom isn't the way I think it should be, or even in my life, the way that I pictured it. 
But what Jesus is showing them and us, explaining to them on that road to Emmaus, is that Israel is important, but nothing is more important than Jesus at the center stage. All right? So let's apply that to to our lives. Evangelism or helping the poor is so important. But Jesus is the center. And if he's not, then we're missing the mark. Because you see, Israel was the center of their focus, not Jesus. For a moment there. And when Jesus put himself back into their center, their depression left. And, and, and the Lord is showing me this right now. Look at We want to use Jesus to heal us or to give us peace in our family. We want to use Jesus for this or that. And he's able to do those things, but only when he's the center of our life will we finally be happy and blessed. Not so simply Jesus can do something for me, but it's who Jesus is, right? You agree with that. I love it when Jesus comes into the scene. Think about this with me. When Jesus came down from the mount, after preaching, after teaching, after the Mount of Transfiguration as well, some three years later, it says the people were amazed to see him when he came down that mountain. As far as the Mount of Transfiguration, I submit that his face was still shining when he came down. Remember, he was shining up on the mountain. I wonder, I think perhaps, I suggest that his face was still shining. And that face was saying, you are forgiven because I have come. See, Moses comes down the mountain. His face was shining but it was face it was was shining because of the law 3000 people died when he came down people ran from him but under grace jesus comes down his face is shining and it's a completely different ending isn't it because remember that boy that jesus came to who had possessed the demon had possessed that little boy and jesus comes down shining And he judged the demon to save the boy. Thank God. He'll judge my demons, whether literally the ones that oppress me or the ones within me, in order to save me and you. Grace is able to separate the two, the demon from the boy, (laughs) right? The law kills the sinner with the sin, but under grace, the sin is dealt with and the sinner is saved. So what all I'm saying is I love Jesus. That's what I'm saying. And I know there's at least 500 of you out there that can totally agree. Every tree, every tongue, every nation. 
Into your hands I commit my spirit. You know those words, right? The words of Jesus upon the cross. But did you also know, perhaps you have known that he is quoting from Psalm 31 verse 5. When David wrote, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And the same verse says, redeem me, O Lord, the God of truth. So Jesus quotes his last words, Psalm 31, verse 5. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. You can tell a bunch about a person from their last words, right? Here's some examples. Here's some last words famously recorded. Jack Daniel, his last word. One last drink, please. That's Jack Daniel's. Malcolm X, cool it, brothers. Thomas Jefferson, is it the fourth? A guy named George Apple, A-P-P-E-L, said, Well, gentlemen, you're about to see a, ba a baked apple. Desi Arnaz, you remember him? I love you, Lucy. Good luck with your new show. Last words of Desi Arnaz. Last words from Winston Churchill? I'm bored with it all, said the bulldog. And finally, Beethoven. Applaud for the comedy is over. So you can tell a lot about a person from their last words. Jesus' last words. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, what's interesting about Psalm 31 verse 
5 that I just read that Jesus spoke is that that was the prayer that every Jewish mother taught her child there in that first century, according to William Barclay, a, a established commentator of the gospel. So, you know, kind of like how moms sometimes teach their kids, now I lay me down to sleep, so on and so forth. Back in Jesus' time, it was, into your hands I commit my spirit when kiddos were getting tucked into bed. And Jesus, though, adds, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Isn't that beautiful? In his final words, it was like a prayer, like a, like a child falling asleep in the arms of his father. To commit, right? It means to trust. When you commit your ways, when you commit your spirit to the Lord, you are trusting him, right? When you commit. Literally, the word is to be trusted with, to be deposited. The spirit, I commit my deepest being into your hands. And now, because of what Jesus has done, you too can commit your spirit to God. Because it says, as soon as Jesus made that prayer, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. He rested. And so too, you rest, you find rest when you finally, when I finally commit my spirit into God's hands. So Psalm 37 verse 5 goes on to say, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him. And he will do this. He will make you righteous and shine like the dawn. Proverbs 16 says, Commit your way to the Lord and your thoughts shall be established. Commit. I remember when my kids were young, one of my kids, when she was a little girl, would say some crazy things. And I would say, how do you know this? And she would say, the Holy Ghost told me. <laughs> She's like three, it's crazy stuff. And then she says, the Holy Ghost told me. But she is showing us what childlike faith is. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. It's, see, it's not what I know, but it's who I know. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus' final words. They weren't large words or philosophical. He wasn't debating. They were words of rest and peace. May you have that rest and that peace as you commit your spirit into the Father's hands.
There's a little Smitty for you, Michael W. Smith, of whom my teenagers cannot stand. <laughs> That's their problem. Oh, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. I'm not accusing them of sin, by the way, for that. Where sin abounds, grace abounds more. Did you know, you probably did, but that translation is literally where sin abounds grace super abounds i love that oh thank you god in those areas of our lives where sin is abounding not purposefully not something we do intentionally so much i mean with intention purposefully of trying to sin as much as we can no 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 but where we are struggling, where sin abounds, grace superabounds. I think um, some of us might tend to have more confidence in sin than in grace, God's grace. And in fact, when Paul wrote that, where sin abounds, grace superabounds, he also addresses his critics right in a few verses later in Romans 6 verse 1 he quotes his critics who accused Paul of saying quote let us continue in sin his preaching of the gospel was being accused of this let us continue in sin but Paul is saying that's absurd that is not what I am saying not for a moment Let's continue in sin so that grace might abound. He, he asked, can we sin so grace will abound? That would, he's saying that's absurd. That, that would be like you and I. Let's, let's get sick so we can enjoy the pleasure of healing. No, thank you. I mean, being sick myself at times, I sure appreciate the healing but doesn't mean that I want to get sick again, right? Same with sin and grace. And another criticism that was leveled at Paul that he addresses in Romans was, let us do evil that good will come. So the accusation was, we can live however we want and God will work it all together for good. And Paul is saying, that's, that's not what I'm saying. That's not my point. That's not what I'm saying. But, but, what, but here's what I want to note. That means that Paul was preaching a message 
that God is able to take evil circumstances and turn it for good. And some uh, jokers were saying he was preaching, let us do evil that good may come. Nope. It's not what he's saying. He is saying when evil is done to us, God will work it together for good. So Romans is really great. It really works through some of these questions that people have and had at that time. And yet it is all addressed where sin abounded, grace abounded more. That word abounded, as you probably know, means increased. It's a different Greek, but here's what's cool. It's a different Greek word that's used when it says where sin abounded, grace abounded more. The second time he uses abounded there is different than the first time. The one he associates with grace is different than the word he associates with sin. So it says where sin abounded or increased, grace abounded or increased more. And the word for abounded next to or beside grace is different. It means it's, it's with the word hyper, super abounded, we would say, hyper abounded. So in English, it's both abounded in, in both our sin, but in his grace. But in the Greek, it's where sin increased, grace super abounded. Kenneth Wiest points out that this hyper means over and above. So it was overflowing grace. Not just enough to meet the need, but overflowing. And yet, if we're not in the spirit, if we're not in the word, we can be so much more conscious of sin than we are of this overflowing, superabounding grace. But don't let people, even me, anyone, Redefine grace for you. Allow the Bible to define grace for you. Here's where I find the definition of grace. In Romans chapter 4, verse 4 and verse 5. To me, it is the definition of grace. I'm turning there right now. If you have a Bible next to you, you can turn there too if you want. Or you might be driving. Don't turn in your Bible if you're driving. Okay? Just don't. Romans 4, verse 4 and verse 5 reads, Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. So it is credited. It is finished. Back to what I began the show with today. Grace works. It is unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor, which means when you think you lack God, God's grace or that it can't flow, and when you think God cannot, then God does and God can not when you're full of I can, but when you're full of God can, he does. Thank you, Lord. It's not about me and my ability, but upon your finished work of the cross. So if it's grace, let me think about this for a moment with me. If it's grace, right? We always want to show our pluses, but grace is flowing in our minuses. As Paul would say elsewhere, in my weakness, his strength is manifest. So if I'm trying to be complete in my strength, God's strength cannot be manifest. But in my weakness, God's strength is manifest. Pete, you talk about grace an awful lot. I sure do. Because without it, I'm in big trouble. Today 
after searching all these years And the man that I saw He wasn't at all who I thought it'd be Well, I was lost when you found me think of the time you, you you might have heard this account of the master of a slave colony back in the early 1800s down in the south and in one instance he was at an auction for slaves, for Africans, and purchased the rights to a young girl. And they head back towards his estate on the outskirts of town. And as they make their way up the road, he turns to her and says, you can go now. I bought you in order to set you free. Why, she asks. Because you are young. You have your whole life ahead of you. You need to have that freedom to live out your life. She was amazed, astounded. She asked, so I'm free to go wherever I want? Yes, you are. I'm free to do whatever I want? Yes, you are. And she thought for a moment, and tears began to run 
down her cheeks, and then she said to him, Then I go with you. (laughs) It's so cool to be a servant of Jesus Christ because that little story I said somewhat illustrates how and why we serve him. He says, you're free. I've set you free. And now you're a Christian. Your sins are forgiven and washed. And we can say in a sense, as I often do on this radio program, so I'm free to go wherever I want? Yep. Free to do whatever I want? Yep. Wow, Lord, that's amazing, that freedom. That grace. That's incredible. What a, what a truth. I'm no longer under the law. You purchased it. You bought it for me. Hmm. Well, Lord, if that's the case, I go with you. May the Lord bless you with his love and his peace through Jesus Christ, his risen son. May the Holy Spirit fill you, bringing you healing and comfort. May you have a great time tonight as you join us for our Wednesday night Bible study with my pops, John Corson. We will be concluding tonight Ecclesiastes. Perhaps one of the best conclusions in all of the Bible for any book. Come out and join us. See you then.